So the very first idea presented, which is somewhat hard for for us to, to, to grasp due to our nature, is the fact that bhakti is in and of itself a haitaki. It has no external cause. It's self-existing. And why is that? Because bhakti is entirely on the transcendental platform. And everything that exists on that absolute transcendental platform is itself transcendental, absolute, which means devoid of the characteristics of the external energy, matter, which is coming and going, being created and destroyed, pralaya. So it's there, bhakti is there, it's ever-existing. What is this process of devotional service? What is this program of trying to come in contact with the Lord? He's all-pervasive, he's everywhere, and bhakti, which is that loving emotion we have for God, is also independent of any mundane cause. Well, everything we're doing in this nature, in this world of cause and effect, has to be effectuated. We have to initiate something to get the effect. So when we say bhakti is haituki, it doesn't have any, any other effect, what does that mean to us? We really need to contemplate that. What's that mean? Everything we think, everything we do, we're very accustomed to performing an activity and receiving a result. So naturally, when we want to approach spiritual knowledge and spiritual life, we think, well, it's only natural that we perform some activity and we'll get the result. And what's the result we desire? We desire bhakti. But bhakti is a haituki, it's causeless. So I can't cause bhakti. Whoa, I can't cause bhakti. What am I doing here? <laughs> we're here, we're reading Bhagavad Gita, we're studying, we're chanting. But I can't cause bhakti by anything that I do. It's causeless. So the key is given in the discourse. It's there. It already exists in us. It's not foreign to us because why? This environment is what is foreign to us. Our true environment is the land of bhakti. Bhakti itself is our spiritual position, our absolute position. We are non-different in the absolute plane from bhakti itself. In the absolute world, everything is that potency which is serving the Supreme perfectly. And that Shakti, that energy that serves the Supreme perfectly, that energy is broadly defined as the realm of Bhakti. We fall into that realm naturally. As long as we're in this environment of exploitation or renunciation, as long as we want to take or we want to avoid in this plane both sides of the same coin, although they may give different results, 
They both give results. Spiritual life is, is not like that. It's not result-oriented. It's not result-driven. It's love-oriented. It's bhakti-oriented. It's spiritual emotion-oriented. Now, we notice that the acharyas, the guru, the great sadhus, the scriptures, they give us so many things in the category of do's and don'ts. Don't they? And they break down all the do's and don'ts according to this external environment. So naturally, the spiritualist, he's going to say, well, if bhakti's a haituki, if bhakti is, it has no material cause, but you're saying for me to awaken bhakti, I have to perform so many activities and avoid so many other activities. It seems like a contradiction, doesn't it? Bhakti's a haitaki. Nothing I can do to get it. But in the scripture, in the instructions of the of the sadhus, in the examples of the lives as depicted in the scriptures, the Puranas, the great histories, Itahashas, so much is given for me to learn from, but what am I really learning? I'm learning how to arouse what's already there. It's nothing to be had from some outside source. It's something that's here already. There's no amount of work I can do. There's no amount of strength that I can muster to get my arms around bhakti. But it's there. And that's what guru means. Guru shows this is how you arouse your bhakti. This is how you arouse spiritual emotion. First of all, we need to cure the disease. Now, being diseased right now, of course I've always been diseased, I'm in this material body. If you have a material body, if you're residing in one of these things, you're diseased. It's a symptom of your disease. Recognize it. Because until you recognize you have a disease, it's hard to do things to get rid of it. You have to know you have a disease. Well, as long as you're wearing one of these things and you're finding your pleasures through the senses, the external senses, as long as that inter, inner spiritual emotion hasn't completely awakened yet, know that the disease is there. And the guru, he's giving prescription. And the shastra's giving prescription. And the sadhus, just being in their association is a constant prescription. They're constantly correcting us, testing us. I mean, are you really humble yet? Krishna's using them to bring out everything that needs to be dealt with. Sometimes it's a bitter pill, but uh, sometimes a bitter pill has to be swallowed. Luckily, we have prashadam, and as they say, a spoonful of... <laughs> makes the medicine go down. 
how to get our heart around bhakti. First thing, know that bhakti is already in your heart. It's no amount of anything that we're going to be able to do except surrender. Except surrender. Well, that's something. I'm doing something. It's not causeless. Bhakti's a causeless. It has no material cause. You're saying surrender and then you can have bhakti. It's not quite like that. It's not quite like that. That's a very unique way of becoming aroused. But I want to, uh, and hopefully our discourse here will gradually lead us all to that specific means by which Guru, Sadhu, and Sastra allow us to come in contact with what is already our rightful position. The Kanista Adhikari, the beginning stages of devotional service, the Kanista stage, the stage of hardly aroused at all, that stage of devotional life is very much about the do's and the don'ts. Very much about regulation. Very much about bringing unbridled senses under control. Very much about molding the disposition of the mind in such a way that it no longer hankers to seek pleasure without, but understands that pleasure is within. Understands. Kanista means beginning, preliminary. The initiate, just beginning. So Kanista very much is about quote, quote, rules and regulations. Quote, quote, do's and don'ts. Because as long as we're thinking the pleasure is without, we'll never look within. You're never going to look within. As long as we think the cause of our suffering in the material world, the threefold miseries of material existence, as, we, as long as we think that is without, that it's coming from some outside source, we'll never understand our material predicament. Everything that this environment is throwing at us was brought about initially by us. That seems like a heavy statement. Everything, this body, this little cage I'm in right now, doesn't seem like a cage, but let's see you fly away. <laughs> if it doesn't seem like a cage now, let's talk about it in 50 years when it really starts to break down and you want out so bad. Please get me out of this place. So we're not meant to stay at this Kanista stage. Not although Krishna talks to us in Bhagavad Gita about the do's and don'ts, the guru when he begins our spiritual life, 
He points out you do like this, you don't do like this. Can you keep these particular standards in life so that I can feel confident that you're serious? The truth of the matter is the do's and the don'ts will never make us Krishna conscious. Devotional service is not about do's and don'ts. But we'll never look within to our true treasure as long as the senses have mastery over the mind. As long as the mind doesn't listen to the intelligence, then there's no hope of truly moving forward in our spiritual life. So spiritual life is not about the do's and don'ts. But in the beginning, unless we properly execute the do's and don'ts, our spiritual life will never be aroused because we won't have control of our mind because the mind is being dictated to by the senses and it's choosing and like a little stop and go light. Yes, go for this. No, don't go for that. Yes, go for this. No, don't go for that. The intelligence is there. Yes, think about that. No, don't ride through the red one. You learned you weren't supposed to go through the red one. When it turns green, you can go. You learned that. So how to harmonize all this? That's what Guru gives us. How to harmonize. How to take scripture, which is piles of law, just law books. Law books for different men in different situations and women and so many laws, my gosh, mind-boggling. It's just sometimes overwhelming. Do this, don't do that. But it all boils down. We're very fortunate because we are in the most awkward of times, the age of quarrel and hypocrisy. And because of the age of quarrel and hypocrisy, because of this Kali Yuga, because of how helpless we are in controlling our mind and senses, this Krishna consciousness movement has come and it's boiled all those condensed, all those do's and don'ts, all those directions of the law books into one simple standard. One standard. There's only one major do and one major don't. You know what that is? Always remember Krishna and never forget him. All the rest of the rules and regulations, you can bring out all the books, you can quote all the scripture you want, but if you don't remember Krishna, all your rules and regulations are useless. And if you do remember Krishna, you're already following all the rules and regulations perfectly. It's that simple. Of course, when you remember Krishna, you're already on the highest standard. There's no question of one who's on that high standard not being a pillar, an example, a perfect example of what spirituality is all about. That's why when we see Krishna's pure devotees, his topmost emissaries, when we see them, you never see a flaw in their character. And if you see a flaw in their character, you need to reassess the situation, even if there is some flaw. 
because everything that they're about is about Krishna, because their objective is all about Krishna, then you just won't see a flaw there. And there's a rule and a regulation about that too. You should never see the spiritual master as, as a regular human being. He's in a special category. And as we advance from the Kanista platform, that beginning stage of spiritual life, where the rules and regulations, where the discrimination is at the highest level, very high level of discrimination in the, in the Kanista. Why? Because he so, has to be so careful to rein in those senses. At that high level of discrimination for spiritual preservation, there's so much judging. Yes, yes, no, yes, no, right, wrong. But you notice that as we advance in spiritual life, and you'll notice in the character of those pure devotees who are free of material fault, that their character is on the highest level because they have Krishna in the center of everything. They're not so much about the do's and the don'ts. They're always showing us how we have to get past that level and get to the heart of the matter. We have to get to the heart of the matter or it'll simply become stale. As I said, we should see continually how we're advancing in spiritual life, how our chanting is becoming more attentive, how our reading is becoming more attentive, how our service and appreciation of the devotees, how keeping the senses at bay. As long as there's a material body, there's going to be senses. And the senses can overwhelm us at any time, as long as we're under the influence of the external energy. So the guru, he gives us directions, keep them at bay. Keep some control there. Should we read some Bhagavad Gita? Sri Bhagavan Vacha Kama Esakrona Esa Rajaguna Samubhava Mahasano Mahaprapna Vidiyena Mihavarinam The Supreme Personality of God had said, It is lust only, Arjuna, which is born of contact with the material mode of passion, and later transformed into wrath and which is the all-devouring sinful enemy of this world. Let's read up to this verse from where we left off. Every man, even a man of knowledge, acts according to his own nature. For everyone follows the nature he has acquired from the three modes. What can repression accomplish? There are principles to regulate attachment and aversion pertaining to the senses and their objects. One should not come under the control of such attachment and aversion because they are stumbling blocks in the path of self-realization. It is far better to discharge one's prescribed duties, even though faultily, than another's duties perfectly. Destruction in the course of performing one's own duty is better than engaging in another's duty, for to follow another's path is dangerous. Arjuna inquired, O descendant of Vrishni, by what is one impelled to sinful acts, even unwillingly, as if engaged by force? The Supreme Lord responded, It is lust only, Arjuna, which is born of contact with the material mode of passion and later transformed into wrath, and which is the all-devouring sinful enemy of this world. 
So Christian's beginning here, he begins really in the 30th verse. Therefore, our Judah, surrendering all your works unto me with full knowledge of me, without desire for profit, with no claims to proprietorship, and free from lethargy, fight. So Christian's encouraging our Judah to engage in, in the warfare, but without any personal motivation, no personal material cause. So it's not that the activity is the difficulty, is it? Activity's there. It comes with the body. So if we can if we can work in this world causelessly, we're talking about bhakti being causeless. When we work in this plane, our activities have to become personally causeless. They can have no personal cause. When we say cause, we mean agenda, objective, motivation. So as long as everything we do has some, some motive for my reward, if our activities are motivated in such a way, then that's what Krishna is talking about. That's not going to bring you to the desired result. So he begins, Arjuna Surrender all your works unto me with full knowledge of me without desire for profit with no claims to proprietorship and free from lethargy fight. If you do that, you become free from the bondage of fruit of work. So the cause of all of our fruit of activity and the resultant enjoyment and suffering. Well, I hate to tell you, from the spiritual point of view, it's all suffering. I know the sadhus say this a lot in all the books they're talking about. Oh, this material world is misery. Misery at every step. And it's kind of like hard. Well, what do you mean? The sun comes up, the birds are chirping, everything's coming up roses, springs about just around the corner. What's wrong with these sadhus? Look, this is God's creation. Look how beautiful it is. The waterfalls and the, the Grand Canyons and the seven wonders of the world. These are all such great, great things. You can take all this in. The sadhus are there. No, it's not really that nice. I'll tell you a story in that regard. <laughs> there was one destitute person. And, of course, when we're destitute, we'll do whatever we can to bring wealth and opulence into our life. He was destitute, and he, a friend of his said, well, you know, I've heard that there's a great saint, and I ha I've heard that uh, he has one of those touch, and the nature of these touchstones is if you touch iron to it, it turns into gold. So I know you're destitute. Why don't you go see him and see if he can help you? So the destitute man, he approached the saint, and the saint was actually one of Lord Chaitanya's personal associates, Sanatan Goswami. So he approached him, and he said, Sir, I'm so destitute, and I've heard from reliable sources that you have a touchstone, which is touchstone I can gain whatever wealth I need to remove this plight. Sanatan goes, yes, I have a touchstone. You want, you can have it. Yes, yes, where is it? Oh, it's over there. I think it's somewhere in that garbage pile over there. Found the touchstone. Enough. Yes. Then he started to contemplate. What is this saintly person? What is what is he all about? That something that's so valuable 
that can give you unlimited opulence and wealth, he has no regard for. He simply throws it in with the garbage. What is that all about? What's he about that he has such, such consciousness? So he, he returned to the saintly personality and he said, I want to inquire from you why such a great object as a touchstone has been discarded by you, put with your garbage bin. Why is that? He said, well, I'll be glad to tell you. It's because I have much something much more valuable. And what I have is so valuable that such a touchstone is insignificant. Well, can you tell me what that is? Yes, I can tell you. Well, there's one condition. Before I can tell you what that most valuable thing is, you must, you must take that touchstone you removed from my garbage heap and throw it in the river. So he did that, and Sanatan Goswami revealed to him the process of devotional service. He revealed to him that inner treasure that he already had. Every man of knowledge acts according to his own nature, for everyone follows the nature he has acquired from the three modes. What can repression accomplish? Our nature is here. It, it came with the body. Now, let's just put that in a little perspective so we can wrap our minds around it. We all have a certain nature. It comes with the body. It's our constitution. There's the gross outward nature, male, female, black, white, you know, the different cultures we're born in, the different traditions that we've adopted, the different religious practices that we've, that we've taken on. Uh, those come with the material body. And there's other distinctions too. Actually, there's, grossly speaking, the scriptures, Veda tells us there's 8,400,000 models available. EGM can't keep up with material nature. 8,400,000 models of vehicles. 8,400,000 species of life. Human life is only 400,000 of that 8,400,000. Human bodies, there's still a lot of variety, 400,000. Some diversity there. Male, female, black, white, so many different traditions, so many different... We know the human bodies on this planet, but of that total 400,000 species of human bodies, there's probably some we're not aware of. They're on different planets. Does that include apes and chimpanzees? I don't think that's the same species as we are. There's one distinction, one distinction of the human form from the animals. The human form has developed intelligence, so much so that they can ask, although most of them don't. That's why the saints, they say, you know, it's human society, they're just, just a bunch of animals. You hear and you say, "Oh my gosh, what a harsh statement!" Human society is just walk, you know, just a bunch of walking animals. That's because although they have intelligence, a lot of people that come into the human form of life and have intelligence, they don't distinguish themselves as human beings because they never say, "Where did I come from? How did I get here?" 
what is the purpose of life? So even if we're in a human life and we're not using this form to inquire about our true nature, at the beginning of that inquiry has to be, how did I get here in the first place? That's what distinguishes human life from the animals. So that's why the saintly people, even though we may see something, they're a human being, the saint will say, well, are they really a human being? Because that's where they make the distinguishing factor. So you may have a human form of life, but until you have, until you utilize the intelligence that comes with that form of life to ask the simple question, Atato Brahma Jignasa, what is my true nature? Then there's really no distinction between you and the animal. Although you're more powerful than most of them, you have some intelligence. Generally, you can survive because of that intelligence. Even in the jungle, mankind can sometimes survive, even though the, the lion's the king. The man may, with intelligence, may be able to subdue the lion, or sometimes he thinks he subdued the lion, and then all of a sudden gets ripped to shreds. You have to excuse me, my, my intelligence isn't working very well because of a head cold, so if I'm not staying on a subject, uh, I hope you'll forgive me. So we all act according to our nature, and our nature comes according to our body. And the bodies, there's so much variety of body. And that body is produced from the seeds of our prior activities. So as Krishna says here, and it's interesting how he words it, even a man of knowledge, even we have spiritual knowledge, even a man of knowledge acts according to his own nature. Even though we may have knowledge of our true spiritual self, still, as long as we're in this environment, we're going to work according to the nature of the body we're given. Some of us are, are Brahmins, some of us are Kshatriyas. Some of us are righteous, some of us are sudras, some of us are intellectuals, some of us are administrators, some of us are business people and agriculturists, and some of us just like to work for other people and don't really want to get into the hassles of management, of doing much more than that. That position has irrespective of spiritual life. That's where a lot of the religions get it wrong. It's where a lot of religions don't understand spirituality. Because they don't realize that spirituality is there for everybody, irrespective of our nature. You don't have to be intelligent to be a spiritualist, although a spiritualist is the most intelligent. You don't have to be a great renunciate or a Brahmin to take to this Krishna consciousness movement. It's not a prerequisite, a big brain. It's not a prerequisite to be born in India, in the Indian culture, which is certain a pious birth. These are, you know, it's a fortunate birth. You don't have to be born in a Brahmin family. You don't have to be in that caste system. Krishna consciousness breaks all of the those molds. So it doesn't matter what our position, what our nature. It doesn't matter. Everybody can take to Krishna consciousness. 
not only take to Krishna consciousness. Sri Chaitanya established a very unique standard for who is the topmost spiritualist. He said it doesn't matter if your line is, it doesn't matter if you're sannyasi or a brahmin or a woman or even a sudra. If you know the science of Krishna, if you know this science and you can help people purify their existence, then you're qualified to make disciples. Qualified to give spiritual instruction if you know this science. And it's such a simple science. Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna, Krishna Krishna, Hare Hare, Hare Rama, Hare Rama, Rama Rama, Hare Hare. Tell everybody, chant Hare Krishna. Purify their heart. Associate with devotees. Serve devotees. That's guru. Of course, he's so much more also. As far as our nature, we don't need to worry about our nature standing in the way of our spiritual arousal. Isn't that how Sridhar Swami said? We need to arouse this. It's already there. It has no cause. It has no material cause. It also has no material impediment. Whatever nature Whatever prior activities have given us this body, whatever that is and whatever it is that we're currently experiencing in this world, our nature, whatever that is, won't interfere with our spiritual life. Won't interfere with arousing our Krishna consciousness because devotional service is what? Aitaki has no material cause. And if it has no material cause, it has no material impediment. Because it's all on the absolute platform. Everything here has a cause and effect. Everything here has a stimulant and something that represses, but not in the spiritual realm. There are principles pertaining to the uh, senses and their objects. One should not come under the control of such attachment and aversion because they are stumbling blocks in the path of self-realization. Now Krishna is starting to break down the simple program. First of all, understand that the senses, the senses naturally give us problems. And we're automatically going to act according to our nature. There are simple prescriptions to make sure that you stay healthy in the world, healthy in life, spiritually healthy is what Krishna is speaking of here. There are principles. I've given you so many, I've given, given so much principle to keep you out of trouble. It is far better to discharge, and make sure that the principles you follow, is what he's going on here, it's better to do the principles that you can, that are according to your nature, is what the next verse is saying. It's better to follow those principles that are, that are there according to your nature than to try to take on something that's outside of your nature. It is far better to I'm sorry, discharge one's prescribed duties even though faultily than another's duties perfectly. Destruction in the course of performing one's own duty is better than engaging in another's duties. For to follow another's path is dangerous. Arjuna started this, didn't he? What did he want to do? He wanted to renounce. I'm going to the woods. 
I'm not going to fight. I'll be a renunciant. Krishna's given. No, you can't do that. That's not going to. You're not going. <laughs> it's not in your nature. So he's just he's clarifying the point for Arjuna. No, everybody has a nature. Better you work according to your nature, but work, work for me. Three or four verses back. Whatever you do, you do that for me. Whatever your nature is, you work for me. Every man has to act. Everybody has a nature. And better you do what you're good at, what this body is, than, than to, to go out and be perfect at somebody else's lot in life. That's not going to satisfy you. So Arjuna begins a new line of questioning. And that's where we, we're, that's the verse we chanted. Arjuna's there. All right. I kind of understand what you're saying, but why is it that I want to act in this world according to my desire instead of yours? How can I get? Because you've given me instruction here. A few verses back, what did he say? Surrender all your works unto me with full knowledge of me, with desires, without desire for profit or gain, with no claims to proprietorship, and free from lethargy, fight. So Arjuna is saying, that sounds all well and good, but I'm not inclined to do that. Why am I not inclined to do that? Why do I want it for me? Why do I want to do it for me? Why am I not inclined to simply do it for you, for your pleasure? And that's where we, that's what we come to in the verse tonight. Arjuna is saying, why? And Krishna is answering, it's simple. All boils down to one thing. Lust. There's lust and lust only, which is born of contact with the modes of passion. And it's the all-devouring sinful enemy. It makes you do things that are contrary to your best interest. So we'll take off from there next week. And Krishna will explain how this lust is there, and how we can see it, recognize it, understand it is the enemy, and put up proper fortifications so it doesn't create havoc. Any questions? Thank you for your tolerance. I apologize for my weak brain this evening. How was the bake sale?